Okay. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, you know, I've been preaching for 26 years now. And uh, I, I, at times, <clears throat> I have it in my file cabinet. I, I have to have, I guess my OCD has to have everything organized in my file cabinet just right. My office looks like chaos, but it's organized in my mind somehow. Uh, but anyway, there, there's a bottom drawer of the file cabinet that almost never gets opened. And the reason is, is because the oldest things that I ever did as a preacher are in that drawer. And when I open it up and I look through those things, I think, wow, I can't even rewrite that and make that good. It was just, it's just, you know, you, you learn and you grow and you develop and, and all of that. But something else that I've found is I go back and read some of the things and I see a different, uh, maybe not personality, but attitude uh, that maybe I hope came grew a little bit with age, uh, but I'm very, very hard on preachers. I'm hard on myself. I'm hard on all preachers. Maybe that's part of my stress issue. It's probably self-created, but anyway, uh really bothers me when we worry about names. It bothers me to say, so-and-so preacher, you know him, he's baptized 700 people over the last 20 years or whatever. Uh, when we can keep track of all that kind of stuff, I think we've missed something. Uh, when we have to list everything off and say so-and-so's spoken in all these places and done all of this and all of that, it becomes about what they have done more than the message that's being delivered. It really shouldn't matter who's delivering the message. What should matter is the message, right? Okay, I say all that because this portion of the book of Second Corinthians kind of humors me a little bit because I can imagine the Apostle Paul being guided by the Holy Spirit to write it and he's having to do some of those things that I just talked about that bug me. Uh, and I imagine them bugging him because of the way that he writes other things. Like he's saying, look, I can't even remember how many people I baptized in this town. That's because that wasn't what was important to him. His job was to teach them. God took care of the conversions through that message, right? And so his job was to teach, not keep track of his numbers. And, and he never went into a city and talked about how important he was and... And you know, one of the things we've talked about between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is evidently some people had come into the city and they had kind of taken positions of leadership or power and they, they were kind of denigrating Paul a little bit to make themselves look more important, making accusations against him. And so in this section, in 2 Corinthians 10 and 11 especially, uh, he kind of has to defend him himself. And even as he's doing it, he says, you know, I feel like a fool. I'm speaking like a fool to have to defend myself in this way. But to show you the emptiness of these guys that have come in, that I'm going to have to do this. And God used him to do it. And so I see a little bit of humor in him having to do that. But you know that in our most recent classes, what he's talked about is their generosity and their giving and their helping of the brethren in Judea and how... You know, Titus was going to show up, and another brother who's unnamed is going to be there, and maybe some others, and, and they wanted the Corinthians to follow through with what they had committed to doing so that, you know, their reputation wouldn't be injured, the work would continue on, prosper, and all of that. And so now he turns around and says, now let's deal with these accusations. And some of the way that he writes, Paul had some sarcasm in him, and he uses some of that in, in some of the things that have been said about him, he kind of just... Uses. Let, I'll show you what I mean. Let's start in chapter 10 and verse 1. <clears throat> now I, Paul, 
myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, before I go further, I want to ask the question, what is meek and gentle? What do they mean? Hmm? That includes humble, but really, what does the word meek mean? Literally. Does anybody know literally? Controlled strength. Literally, meek means controlled strength. Like Moses is called the most meek man on the earth. That doesn't mean weak. What it means is he was a powerful person that kept all of that under control so that it could be used for good purposes. Self-restraint, all right? So gentleness, then, is how you use that power. Meekness is how you control it. Gentleness is how you use it, whether you use it in a destructive way or a positive way. And so right off the bat, he says, look, the reason I came in and did what I did, the way I did it is because I was controlling myself and using what God has given me in a positive way. So that sets the stage for where he's going to go with his defense. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you and being absent am bold towards you. Now, any of the... Any of the accounts when we were going through the book of Acts and you saw him go to these different cities and teach, any of those accounts show him as lacking in boldness when he went into a town? No. In fact, most of the time it was less than a week that they were uh, there was an uproar in the town and they were threatening him and he was having to be let out of a city. In fact, at the end of chapter 11, he's going to refer back to when he was in Damascus and had to be let out in a basket. So... Paul's not saying he literally was somebody who went in and was very quiet and timid in their presence, and then when he went away, he wrote the letters very boldly. He's using that because that's what they've said about him. That's what these, uh, these, these accusers, or whoever they are, these people that have come in and tried to take power, what they've said about him is, yeah, sure, he wrote that letter back telling you how bad everything is and how much we have to change and all of that, but he's not here. And if he is here and really cared about us, he wouldn't be saying things hard like that. So that's the accusation that has been leveled. And he identifies with it there and says something else. Verse 2. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. That's kind of a little bit of a thread, isn't it? What he's saying here is, you know, uh, I will show just how bold I have to be when I go in and deal with who? What, what pronoun did he use? Is that a pronoun? Is the word some a pronoun? Well, he used the word some, whatever it is. He used the word some. Who do you think he's referring to? It's the people that have accused him. The people that are saying he's a nobody. He's, 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 he's just weak. He acts real big when he's what we would say today, when he's behind that computer keyboard. But face-to-face, he's not going to do anything. And he says, when I show up, those people that are making that accusation, they're going to see. And I really don't want to have to be that way. Keep reading. Oh, by the way, he says, they think... What does he mean there at the end when he talks about they think we walk according to the flesh? Let me ask you a question. Get back to what I started with a while ago. The reason I'm so hard on preachers is because we need to feel important. Too many preachers need to feel important. Too many people get into preaching because they think it makes them important. And so we want people to 
hear that we spoke on such and such lectureship or such and such place or we have this many numbers. Okay? And here's what happens. That's always compared to somebody. It's always compared to somebody. I mean, you go back to somebody like Diane Woods that spoke all those meetings. Well, if he spoke a thousand meetings and you spoke one, how do you compare to Diane Woods? Not so great, right? That's the truth, but I'm hitting what this is talking about. All right? The point is, these people are praising themselves by putting Paul down because that's, they, that's flesh. That's what they want to feel. That's our desires. That's, that's where our fulfillment is. And he says, these people think that we're worried about being liked, that we're worried about being popular, that we're worried about fleshly desires. Well, guess what? It's an ego. Look at three. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. It's not about, his, it's not about himself, is it? It, he may be alive physically, obviously, as he shows up to teach, but it's not about flesh. Now, I stop there because this next section is a passage that we like to pull out of context today. So I want to stop and then read this whole thing. Verse 4, connecting word. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, usually the way that gets used is we start talking about motivational posters or something. And we have a quote that says, what you try to do in life is you try to pull down strongholds and all those things that war against you and you're trying to conquer in your life spirituality. Listen, I know the Bible teaches we need to conquer uh, you know, the, the temptations that we have in life and grow spiritually and all of that. That's not what this passage is talking about. This is a context of Paul saying, these people are accusing me of being weak. I don't want to show up and be bold. I'm not in it for the praise. But I'll tell you what, my job is to show up and defeat all of the enemies of truth. And so I'm going to show up and I'm going to pull down whatever they're using to prop themselves up with, their stronghold, gone. I'm going to pull it down, and I'm going to defeat anything, and it's not going to be a... You know, he's not coming in with an army, is he? He's coming in with the truth. And whatever it takes to, to take the truth and destroy the error or the attacks even against him, he's going to show up and do. That doesn't sound like somebody who's weak, does it? Keep reading. Verse 7. If you look at things according to the outward appearance... If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. You know, the people in Corinth had miraculous gifts, didn't they? And where did they get those? Paul laid hands on them, didn't he? He went in and taught the gospel. The church began there with his work. He laid hands on people. They got miraculous gifts. If they, these people are using them, if they're remaining faithful to God, they know who he is, don't they? No matter what anybody says. Make any accusation you want to, against, you want to make against Paul. They know who he is. And so he says, you know, I, I just don't really hold, see the point in discussing this issue, but I'm going to have to because you've been listening to these people that are well, that are error. And he'd rather not have to write that hard letter in the first place. Verse 10. 
for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible? Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. So I've been telling you this as we've gone through the whole book up to this point, that they had made all these accusations and, you know, he's weak and he, he's bold when he's away and all that. Now we're getting into the places where he, he, he actually tells you that. There are people there who are saying, look, he's a nobody. You guys think he's such a wonderful person and he's a nobody. Yeah, he writes this tough letter and makes him think that he's so tough, but when he shows up, he's a nobody, and we'll show you that he's a nobody. And Paul says, what we're going to show you is what the truth is. They think our letters are hard? Just wait. And do you think it's because he's angry? Does he sound angry? He doesn't sound angry to me. What's he sound? Convinced of the truth. That's what he sounds like. Somebody who says, you know what? These guys that are presenting this error, when I show up with the truth, they're not going to have a defense. They're not going to have a stronghold. They're not going to have their fortified location. They're going to have to stand on their own, and the truth can be bold. Keep reading. Verse 12. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. I love that passage because it's not just preachers that do that. We all do that. You know, we all have to compare. That's one. I, I like Facebook. I've got a Facebook. I have a lot of friends on there that I communicate with back and forth. It's, it's good to keep up with family and others through that. But I'll tell you something. There are a whole lot of people who are killing themselves, uh, not in a literal sense, but killing themselves in their lives because it's something like Facebook. Because they get on there and they see so-and-so husband and wife that they're just so wonderful and they're always praising each other and blah, 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 flowers and gifts. and Oh, we went out on this and that. And they're thinking, man, my, my marriage doesn't look like that. Oh, yeah, my husband did the dishes. My husband hadn't done the dishes in three months. We compare things, right? Yeah, on fake book. You've heard me say that before. Because I know. I know these people. I know what they post. And then I go... That's not what they were telling me last week, how wonderful they were. We compare our lives. So-and-so, the, the, the reason we have problems with, one of the reasons we have so many problems with young people today is because they put models and everything up that they're unrealistic to try to live up to. But that's who we compare ourselves to. But on the other hand, when we're wanting something you know, when we're wanting power or prestige or whatever, and we don't compare ourselves to those people, do we? You know, anybody here watch those singing shows like American Idol or The Voice or whatever? One of the things that always, I, I hadn't watched as much of it recently, but one of the things that always makes me shake my head on that those shows is the beginning of it, when they're first having people come in and sing and these people are saying, I am the next whoever, right? And then they get up and sing and you go, Somebody ought to care enough to tell them they're doing the wrong thing, right? Okay, that's because they're not comparing themselves to some professional somewhere. They're listening to, well, I don't know who they're listening to, but they're listening to somebody that's worse than them, right? If we want to feel better about ourselves, we compare ourselves to somebody worse, right? Okay, what these people are doing, these false teachers are doing is they're not comparing themselves to God and what God expects. 
They're comparing themselves to their fellow man. I'm not going to stand before God someday and be contrasted with Willie or Patrick or Marshall or whoever. I'm going to stand there with God's Word. That's a different contrast, isn't it? Keep reading. 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, for we're not extending ourselves beyond our sphere, thus not reaching you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. I've known enough <clears throat> missionaries throughout my life that you can see a danger that develops in some places. The mission field is a very difficult place because you live on support. And since you're living on support and you're usually in another location, then the places that support you are not there. They don't know what's going on. And since you're living on support and you know that next month you may get a letter from somebody that's going to cut you off, then you have to send back these letters, right? Emails or some kind of letters. Okay, what if you send back that letter and say, well... You know, we had Sunday morning worship, Sunday night worship, Wednesday night worship, and we did that four weeks this month. Hope everybody's well back at home. You get enough of those letters, and the congregation, not knowing what the work's like over there, starts to say, well, they're not doing anything more than we're doing. We're not going to send our money anymore. So what they start doing is they start talking about everything. And before long, there are some missionaries that I've seen that write about everything everybody else is doing <laughs> rather than what they're doing. Why? Because they need the support. Okay, well, these, these teachers that have come in and put themselves against Paul have to get in popular with the people. And so as they contrast themselves with other people to make themselves look good, Paul is saying, I don't have to take praise in somebody else's work. And that's what they're doing. They claim to be the ones that have built up this Corinthian church, and yet who were we told in the beginning of 1 Corinthians did it? Paul planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. We know where it came from, don't we? And so he's saying, you know, anybody who needs to glory, what you need to glory in is the fact that God has used you for something. Not that you're so important, but that God has used you as a tool for something. And he's doing all of this in chapter 10 to set the stage for where he's going to go in chapter 11. You know, he kind of lays a foundation saying, look, I don't compare myself to other people. It's about me and God. I don't take praise in somebody else's work. It's about me and God. You know, I'm not weak. I'm doing what God sent me to do. Now in chapter 11, he has to go the other route. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. Indeed, you do bear with me. For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. What does he mean he's jealous of them? You know what a hireling is? What's a hireling? Somebody's working for wage, but doesn't everybody do that? 
The difference between somebody who's a hireling that's getting paid the wage and somebody who's not a hireling that's getting paid the wage is attitude. Some people do what they do just for the wage. Some people do what they do because they enjoy what they're doing. That's a difference. And when you're talking about a position like Paul's talking about here with his evangelizing to them, uh, the hireling is the person who's doing it just because they want the wage or the popularity or the ego, and the other one's doing it because they love God and they love the people. Is there not a difference? There's a huge difference. That's what he's accusing these people of being. They just want the ego. They just want the pride. They just want... They're actually asking for support even. In fact, what they're going to say in a little while is they're going to say... Uh, Look, Paul showed he's not worth being here because he didn't take a pay from you. <laughs> but you pay us because we're important. Okay, let's, let's get to it. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The reason he's jealous for them is because he is invested in them. He's not a hireling. And so he says, this hurts me, this matters to me, and the reason I'm being so bold and the reason I'm going to show up and be bold is not because of me and my pride and my ego, but about you. It's about what's going to happen to you. I'm afraid. Think about how simple it was. And I realize, you know, we can talk about the fact that there are obviously some complex things about conforming our life to that of of the Christ, right? There are some complex things to that changing who we have been into more what God wants us to be. But the truth of the matter is, it really is a simple thing. And it boils down to two things, God's way or man's way. Now, there are complexities in that, but it's a simple thing. And to show its simplicity, he refers back to when it started, when they're in the garden, and they have all of these gifts from God all over in this garden, and they have two trees that are special trees, and one of them is the tree of life, and that keeps them in this perfect condition. The whole environment is perfect because of this tree of life. And then the other tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of all of the trees in the garden, there's that one simple tree that God told them not to eat from, right? Okay, so when the devil shows up, of all of those trees, he goes to that one, and that's really simple, right? You can eat anything you want to eat, don't eat one tree. That's simple, right? Okay, but the devil made it complex, Well, you know God's holding out on you. God doesn't want you to be like him. God wants to keep you from having any fun. And he made it complex, and what happened is she became deceived, right? And Adam said, with his eyes wide open. Right? And so what Paul is saying here is, I'm working so hard because you matter to me, and I'm scared for you. I'm scared that what has been so simple, I brought the gospel in and you, you listened to it and you became Christians. Now becoming more, that perfecting holiness and the fear of God that we talked about in the last class, that's a little more complex, but they became Christians in a very simple way, didn't they? So I'm afraid somebody's going to lead you away from that. Keep going. For, for he, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, Or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. You know, you think about it. As we stand here today, I believe with all of my heart that this church is never going to go into error. I believe that with all of my heart. I believe that this church is never going to corrupt the worship Uh, to God. We're just not going to let it happen. 
I don't believe there'll ever be anybody in this pulpit that'll teach a corrupt, man-made plan of salvation. That's where we stand here today. But what happens with the next generation or the next generation? Do you know? I mean, we do everything we can to teach and, you know, pass on what we, the Scriptures teach and that commitment to it and all of that, but do you really know? I mean, there are, there are churches in the United States today that the generations past would have stood up and said the same thing I just said to you, and they're not in that same place anymore. And that's what Paul's saying here. He says, look, you get away from the simplicity. Somebody shows up and says there's another Messiah. Well, you, you're going to say, you're crazy. There's not another Messiah. Or there's another spirit. Well, the, the spirit that gave them the ability to do miraculous things, who would say this other one's as good? Or even another message, another gospel. You're not going to believe it. But he said, the problem is you get deceived, you will believe it. If you're deceived, you'll follow another truth or error, believing that it's true. So you see why he's, he's given them a reason why he's having to be so bold. Yep. Constantly. Yep. Yep. All right, verse 5. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. Now, I want you to think about that. He didn't say there's a ranking of apostles. He's saying I'm not beneath any of them. And it's not because he was a trained speaker. See, that's something we just learned about the Apostle Paul. We know a lot about him. We know that he was powerful in the Jewish religion, right? The Jewish hierarchy. He was working his way up. He had a lot of authority and he was connected to the right people and all of that. Uh, Very well trained. The great teacher of his day, Gamaliel, was his trainer, right? A wise man, in fact, some of the things he said, even though he obviously was following along with everything, still was very wise in some of the things that he said. What he wasn't was a very good speaker. So he says, you know that I don't impress anybody with my speech. So if you look at the, you look at the apostles and you say, well, Paul's not a very good speaker. So we got Peter. He's a good one. You know, he's, he did the first gospel sermon. Peter's like the good preacher. And you got these others that are. But Paul, eh, kind of dry. Uh, and then Paul says, I'm not beneath them, and it's not because I've been trained as a speaker. It's because the knowledge that I have didn't come from me. See, when God gave the apostles the miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit to go out and not only lay hands on people and pass it on, but they could do all the miracles they needed, did Paul get less of them? No. So it was about God again, right? Okay, keep going. Verse 7, here's where we get into their other accusations. Did I commit sin in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one for what was lacking to me. The brethren who came from Macedonia supplied, and in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself their accusation evidently was we're worthy to be paid he's not and he showed it by he didn't if he was really worthy of being paid he'd have come in here and made you pay him 
And Paul says, do you think that's a weakness? That I actually suffered my own self to help you? Do you think that's a weakness or a strength? Well, what would you say? Obviously, he sacrificed for them, right? And he said, not only that, but these other churches sacrificed so that I could do that without hurting you. And by the way, I talked about this on Sunday. I'll mention it again here. This is another example of multiple churches working together on one mission site. There are some today who teach you can't work together with other congregations. It all has to be separate. Well, they were doing it. They were doing it through Paul. Multiple churches in the Macedonian area were helping Paul uh, when he was working at Corinth. So he says, even as I was burdened, these churches sent me help. And all of it was because of how much you matter. Keep going. Verse 10. Uh, 11. Why? Uh, 10. As the truth in Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the region of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. He, he basically says, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, the way that I'm doing it, and what's going to happen is the way that I'm doing it and the things that I'm doing are going to expose the false. I, you think that it's important to identify error? Okay. How do you do that? Yeah. I, there are times, and I, I have to do this from time to time, I suppose. There are times that in order to expose error, you have to actually point at the error and say that's error. But there are times, and this is more what Paul's doing here, that in order to expose the error, all you have to do is teach the truth. I'll give you an example. The plan of salvation. If you could take the Bible and prove that baptism is the place where you contact the blood of Jesus and are saved because your sins are washed away, and by the way, that's Acts 22, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21, Romans 6, 3 through 5, and you're placed in Christ, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, if you can prove that that's the truth, which those verses do, and many others, you know what you disprove? The sinner's prayer? Belief only? Earning your way to heaven? If we spend all our time focusing on all the error, when would we preach truth? If, on the other hand, we focus on preaching truth, we expose error. We're not susceptible to the error. So what Paul's saying here is, I'm going to do the things I'm doing the way that I'm doing them because that's what God sent me to do. And in doing so, I'm going to expose these people who are false apostles. They're pretending to be apostles. Which, by the way, that ought to be easy to prove. I mean, if the apostle Paul can lay hands on you and give you miraculous gifts, how about the next person we, we baptize, we get one of these, these other new guys to come in and lay hands on them. Let's see what happens. See? The truth exposes the error, doesn't it? Keep going. I actually want to read that, that verse 13 again, and then we'll go through 15. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works 
You know, <clears throat> I think back to the account that we used just a little while ago, that he used just a little while ago, and I have to tell you, based on today's culture or context, I guess I should say, if I'm the one in the Garden of Eden and a snake comes up talking to me, it's not going to be a long conversation, <laughs> right? Because today's context, snakes are not good. Maybe they are to you, not to me. If there's a snake in my yard, we're not sitting around seeing if he talks. Uh, But what was happening in the garden was a little different, wasn't it? That was a good thing. It was something that was enticing. and, And what Satan argued with her wasn't, you need to do this wrong thing because, you know, you just need to be independent. No, what he said is, you could be like God. He's... He's trying to make her more spiritual is what he's saying. Wiser, better able to do what you're supposed to be doing. Listen, nobody shows up. Nobody shows up with error and says, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. After we're done with today's sermon or today's class, I'm going to make sure that your life is worse than it was when it started. Who does that? Who would show up and say, by the time I'm done today, I'm going to make sure that everybody here has is, is had the opportunity to be lost? Nobody does that. Yet I can't tell you how many times there have been preachers, big-name preachers, that uh, blatantly teach error and people say things like, yeah, but look at how much good he does. I saw a video just this week of Benny Hinn. Uh, You may not know who he was or is, but uh, at one point he was pretending to do miracles and then he started preaching and then somebody called him out on his error and so he said God told him to quit preaching and go back to doing miracles. And so... I watched a video and these people were coming up and he was just pushing them down and he'd dance around and then he'd push them down again and they just kept falling over and putting on this, this big show. And I, I say, I'd say to somebody, are you kidding me? Tell me where truth is in that. You can't tell me that somebody that good is lost. What do you mean? Does the devil show up in a red suit with a tail and horns? Or does he show up? You think the devil's best tool is to get people to be wicked? Or do you think the devil's best tool is to get people to be good? Yeah, if I'm a good person, I don't really need God. I'm pretty good myself. I've told you about it before. The book Screwtape Letters, written by C.S. Lewis. Uh, the The idea behind it is there's these little minor devils that are trying to work their way up in the ranks and they get sent to earth to they've got people they're supposed to be watching over or whatever and this one that's reporting back and he says i can't get them to quit going to worship services and his supervisor says well is that all they're doing this is a paraphrase obviously a summary is that all they're doing they're just going to church they're not you know changing the way they live or whatever he said no he said don't get them to quit going they're right where you want them They're showing up thinking they're good and spiritual and religious, but they're not changing anything. Well, that's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, look, the devil doesn't show up looking all scary. He shows up looking good. These religious teachers that are leading you away, they're not going to show up and say, hey, I'm going to lead you away from God. They don't even know it sometimes. But God knows, doesn't he? And that's why Paul's so defensive of this. All right, now here's the part that we get to where I was talking about. I can almost see him smiling as he writes it. Verse 16. I say again, let no, man, let no one think me a fool, 
If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little bit. How do you receive a fool? Oh, that's just Terry. Right? We feel bad for Terry because that's how he is, so we'll just be nice to him. Right? Okay, so he says, look, I don't want to act like these people that boast on themselves from a worldly uh, perspective, but I'm going to have to do so. So if you think that's foolish, which I do, then at least bear with me for just a little while. That's basically what he says. Now, what is being a fool? What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I will also boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are so wise. They've been listening to these people that are praising themselves. And he says, you really think you've got it all figured out, right? For you put up with it. If one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame, I say that we were too weak for that, but in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I also am bold. Let me say something about that before we get into the harder part of this. Uh, you think anybody goes to worship services in the hope that they'll be bound in error? No. We go to worship services because we want to be with God, right? I don't care where you are, that's why you go. If you're sincere. You go because you want to be with God. So people don't seek to be bound. But if you follow error, that's what happens to you. So have you ever had anybody, or maybe have you ever thought yourself? I know the Bible. Somebody come to you with something that's truth and you reject it because you say, I know the Bible. I know what the Bible says. He who believes... Uh, wait, John 3, 16. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know the Bible says that's so all you got to do is believe, right? Except for there's more in the Bible than that one verse. So I know just enough to be dangerous or to be bound. And so he says these guys coming in and boasting for themselves, you thought you were so smart and so wise, and they took you right into bondage. So let's compare Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Wait, what's the difference between a Hebrew and an Israelite? You're talking about a more specific line here. <laughs> yeah. one, is, one, is a, one is a race and one is a choice to be in a religion, isn't it? Okay. A descendant of Abraham was a Hebrew, wasn't it? Okay, keep going. Uh, are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. So he's not, he's not just bragging about himself, is he? That's why he says, it's like a, I feel like a fool to say this, but I'm more. Well, what does he mean more? Read it. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils from false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Stop there. Okay. That sounds like the list I was talking about in the very beginning of class. So why does he use it? 
What's his point? These people that have showed up and led you away because they are so important, when you put their resume next to what God's given me to do, they're not quite so important, are they? Now, here's a question. Why would Paul go through all these things? It's all about God and Paul and Paul and his brethren. And that's going to come next. Most of these things we don't even know about. If he hadn't mentioned them here, we wouldn't know about it. They're not all recorded in the Scriptures. We read about a shipwreck, not three, right? Often in perils. In fact, tell me where he wasn't in perils. I mean, in the city, in the wilderness, in the sea. He pretty well listed everywhere, didn't he? So he says, basically, my whole life is this. And by the way, when he says he's in perils of Jews and perils of Gentiles, tell me who's left. He's pretty much in a position where everybody's against him, isn't he? Okay, but there's more. Verse uh, 28. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the churches. I think that was harder for him. He could get away from them when they threatened to throw him in jail. He could live and survive through the stoning. But what went with him everywhere he went is what happened to these churches. Why did God use him to write the letters back to the church at Corinth? Why did God use him to write all these letters that he wrote to these different places and people? It's because everywhere he went, they were with him. In fact, look at how he describes it as we keep reading. Verse 29, Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not burn with indignation? You hear him saying, look, when, you're, when I have to write the letter back telling you guys that you're in trouble because you're divided, that's because it hurt me. When I read about, you know, you're fighting about the miraculous gift, that hurts me. When I read about a brother who has fallen into sin and the whole congregation is happy about it, that hurts me. And he says, in fact, it makes me angry. First off, he says, the people that are weak, I'm weak with them. It hurts me. But on the second side, when somebody is made to stumble... And by the way, we've talked about that before in Romans, and we'll be in it again sometime soon. But when we talk about stumbling, we're not talking about somebody's feelings get hurt. We're talking about when somebody has a conviction, even on something that is not sin, but it's your conviction and somebody else doing it causes you to do it, to violate your conscience. Now, if it's something that's sin and they cause you to do it, that's the same thing. But the point is, when somebody causes somebody else to be wrong, it makes him angry why he's angry about these false teachers 30 if i must boast i will boast in the things which concern my infirmity or weakness paul says i'm thankful for my weakness not for all the power that i have or all the the great things that i've been able to do the god and father of our lord jesus christ who is blessed forever knows that i'm not lying in damascus the governor under eridus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to apprehend me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So he just gives them an example that they knew about and uh, said, look, I do what I do because of how much I love God and how much I love you. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Okay, we've run out of time. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here tonight to study your word, and we're so thankful for the strength that we gain to continue through this week. Help us, Father, to recognize that our relationship to you is the most important thing in our lives. 
that we can grow into the people that you desire for us to be, that we can shine your light throughout our community and our world. Help us, Father, not to trust in ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.